Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. At Teacher, we're often asked for more resources and information on behaviour management. In our latest episode in our behaviour management series, we spoke with senior lecturer and course leader for the Master of Applied Behaviour Analysis at Monash University, Erin Leaf, and Russell Fox, lecturer in behaviour analysis, also from Monash University. They join us again in this episode, but this time it's to answer your questions that you submitted. We ask for these questions in our weekly teacher bulletin, which is a free subscription you can sign up for at our website, teachermagazine.com. In this episode, we're going to delve into the link between positive behaviour support and academic learning, how positive behaviour support can be integrated with the principles of trauma-informed practice, and how we can upskill other members of the school community to help us in this area. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the Teacher Podcast, Erin and Russ. It's great to have you back on for your third episode now. Uh, It's going to be a bit different this episode, though, to our last ones that we've done with you. We actually invited our readers and our listeners to write in to us with questions or topics that they'd like some more information on to do with behaviour management to support them in their school settings. So we've got a great range of topics, I think. So I think we should jump straight into them. The first question that we're going to look at is from a reader who wrote to us saying, we're currently working through the school-wide positive behaviour support modules within our dedicated team to implement this school-wide framework. I'd love to hear or read more from other schools who have already implemented this and the outcomes so far. So to talk about this idea a little bit more generally to be able to have as much impact with our audience as possible, Russ, can you talk us through the link between positive behaviour support and academic learning? Yeah, sure. Um, and and I, I'll, I'll get back to the specific question because I think um, reading about things on uh, pages of journals or um, reading about um, people's experiences of success on blogs and things like that, that that's really helpful. But uh, I'm, I'm going to circle right back around to talk about a way to connect in, in the Australian context um, with other people who are implementing, um, some of them further along in their journey than others. So, uh, and that's the Association for Positive Behaviour Support Australia. Just to flag it, I will come back to it. So we're thinking about the links between positive behaviour support and academic learning. Um, there, there are several things that Erin and I talk about. And one is that we consider academic learning as being behaviour. We're just doing behaviour that's um, focused on the domains of academics. We're talking about reading behaviour. We're talking about, and in, within reading behaviour, that's a general sort of set of skills that we use. I mean, there's like the, the decoding of words for some people. They're tracking with their finger as part of their reading process. There are a range of skills within there. And so each of those is a behavior. So we think about that as behavior. So when we're talking about learning, we're talking about behavior. When we're talking about behavior, we're talking about behavior. And so the strategies that we're talking about here really come back to the core things that teachers do as part of their work, which is assessing student progress, assessing their skill level currently, what the next skill is, and then going about um, teaching and providing feedback on their progress towards those skills be it academic or social. So in terms of the links, like in, at a, sort of that conceptual level, yeah, we're talking about learning as behavior, behavior as behavior, and assessment, planning for the next skill development, and then providing feedback and reinforcement for learning or correction if we need to, 
um, has been critical to that. Now, we do see when we implement PBS or school-wide positive behaviour support or PB4L, positive behaviour for learning, because listeners across Australia um, will be calling it different things, um, we do see that it buys us more time to get back to instruction. When we do good tier one implementation, when we're doing the, the core practices like establishing really good routines, teaching students about those routines and reinforcing them and making sure that when they do um, engage in the classroom expectations and norms, that it, it works for them, that they feel good about it, but it also is really clear about how that benefits the, the group together, how it creates belonging and a sense of our class community. When we do that really well, we actually have more time. We're spending less time interjecting um, you know, into the lesson and correcting, talking across the room and correcting students for engaging in fairly low-level disruption, disruption in some instances. And it also um, sets us up to deal with the bigger stuff. Like if we can eliminate the low-level disruption or minimise it or have a plan for it and be working towards it, it might be a little bit more bumpy in Term 1 and then by the time we sort of hit our stride, you know, middle, later parts of Term 1 and into the rest of the year, we can actually spend a little bit more of our, um, our planning time and, our, and, of course, we know that that is limited too. We're not saying that teachers have hours and hours of spare time. But by doing really good tier one, we win time back in our class. We allow ourselves to focus on some of the, um, the students that might need more intensive or individualized supports. And a teacher's role really should be working to implement plans around with support um, from leadership and from team leaders and the like around some of the students that need more individualized support. So there's a lot in there. So I think if I, if I just like, you know, recap a little bit, there are links between academics and behavior on a conceptual level. We're talking about the same sorts of, we're talking about behavior. Sometimes we label it as academic behavior, literacy behavior, maths behavior, and sometimes we call that social behavior. Um, and that's how you know we talk about it in our work. And I think it's really helpful for teachers to think about this as, oh, I'm just teaching, I'm assessing, I'm teaching, and I'm giving feedback. So on the conceptual level, and then when we think about it on, on the broader level, we buy more time for um, our teaching by setting up these good routines and doing a really good job of that. Um, and again, it's the same sorts of processes where we're, when we're instructing, we're you know, letting students you know, know what the content is. We're giving them an opportunity to engage in that content by responding to it. And then we're providing them feedback, either reinforcing or correct, corrective feedback, if they are moving towards that learning goal or not. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of symmetry there. But also, um, we actually see some of the benefits of implementing school-wide positive behaviour support within the research literature that shows that there are some academic gains um, that come with that. So schools that focus on this really genuinely do buy themselves more time to focus on the instruction. Um, but then, for the question from the listener, and I'm sorry if I've ranted too far away from the question, um, the, the Association for Positive Behaviour Support Australia is uh, like a, a not-for-profit organisation that um, gets together people from um, all across Australia who are uh, working to implement positive behaviour supports, um, positive behaviour intervention supports, positive behaviour for learning, however it's <laughs> labelled across the states. Um, it's, it's connecting them together in communities of, of practice where they can meet with other um, schools, uh, teachers, staff in schools, leaders who are implementing currently. They can hear stories of success. They can share their own experiences and learn from each other. 
So that's one way that people can plug in in a, in a way that's a bit more sort of human connection than just reading, you know, uh, let's say Bradshaw and colleagues 2008, where we're looking at the impact of school-wide positive behaviour intervention supports across it. So there's, you know, that's a, it's a much more um, personal way to hear stories and see people in communities similar um, to your own implementing and what they're achieving as a result of that. And so the next question that we received was on the topic of trauma-informed practice, which is something that um, comes up quite consistently with our listeners. So this listener in particular asked, what kind of behaviour management strategies are best to adopt in order to make students with trauma feel as comfortable as possible in your classroom? So Erin, how might positive behaviour support be integrated with the principles of trauma-informed practice? It's a great question, and it's a topic that I really enjoy talking about. Um, I think the first thing we need to distinguish is between what we call trauma-specific services and trauma-informed practice. So when we talk about trauma-specific services, we're talking about individual clinical interventions that are specifically designed to address trauma-related symptoms. And these are the types of things that might fall within the scope of practice of a psychologist or a mental health professional working individually with clients and actually perhaps talking about their trauma or prescribing individual interventions. Um, And that's not what we're going to do in classrooms. What we're going to do instead is adopt trauma-informed practice as a lens that we can overlay on top of the school-wide positive behavior support framework or we can integrate with the school-wide positive behavior support framework. Um, It's a universal way of operating within a school that can benefit all students but particularly be sensitive to the needs of students who may have been impacted by trauma. And that could be um, a single event, such as a a bushfire or a flood, or it could be students who have experienced ongoing traumatic events like abuse, neglect, or having um, experiencing domestic violence within the family. Um, And so what we advocate for is integrating the principles of trauma-informed practice into the systems within a school. And the National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration describes trauma-informed practice as a, a system, a framework that, first of all, realizes the widespread impact of trauma and how that might impact an individual, understands multiple potential pathways for somebody who's been impacted by trauma to thrive and to experience a full and rich life, recognizes the signs and symptoms or risk factors for trauma in individuals, and also responds by building teams within that system that have knowledge to effectively um, take steps to build strong, positive relationships with students, understand if there are some historical factors that need to be considered, and take steps to actively resist re-traumatizing the student. So generally within um, a PBS model within schools, we might integrate an approach that's based on the four R's. So the four R's are that we realize, we recognize, we respond, and we resist. So we realize, first and foremost, the widespread impact of trauma and understand that people who have been impacted by trauma, although we can't go back in time and change those events, we can help build resilience. We can introduce those um, students and families to more protective factors that are going to... um, 
protect them from the negative effects in the future. We also recognize that the signs and symptoms of trauma can look like a variety of things for our students. In some cases, it might look like externalizing behavior. In some cases, it might look like internalizing behavior. Um, it can it can look a lot of different ways. And in fact, sometimes um, the difficult behaviors that we see in our students, particularly those that have been impacted by trauma, are in fact very adaptive responses to very maladaptive environments. So these students have learned to engage in behaviors that in other contexts keep them safe. And now those behaviors are occurring at school or in other contexts where perhaps they don't serve the student in the same way. But we need to be sensitive to that, that those were behaviors that actually perhaps saved the child's life in another context. We respond by, first of all, developing systems within our school that can provide information about trauma and can provide pathways to refer on to other professionals who can assist our students and families who are impacted by trauma. And then we actively seek to resist re-traumatization. So we want to avoid putting our students in situations at school where we're in fact re-traumatizing them. We're re-exposing them to those trauma triggers. And so there's actually a lot of ways in which positive behavior support and trauma-informed practice already overlap with each other. So it's not actually a very hard thing to do. Specifically within positive behavior support, we look at establishing clear and predictable social environments where adults say what they do and do what they say. We focus on building strong relationships, strong and trusting relationships with our students and their families. We look at understanding the reasons why behaviors of concern are happening for our students and try to go upstream and address the root cause rather than just changing behavior for the convenience of others. And we provide within school an instructional framework. So here we are coming back to this idea of um, integrating academic learning and behavior. We meet the student where they're at and we teach them new skills that can build resilience, that can build self-regulation and self-esteem. And so <clears throat> essentially, um, these overlap with characteristics of trauma-informed practice, which are focused on things like building safe and positive learning and living environments that focuses on building dependable, trusting relationships that emphasize um, security. We teach new skills, new ways of self-regulating and getting our needs met that build resiliency. And all of these qualities are central in both uh, SWPBIS and trauma-informed practice. So I think there are some real synergies here, um, but I think that it takes a whole school approach. So this shouldn't fall on individual teachers. The school needs to articulate how are we going to design our policies in ways that are trauma-informed? How are we going to provide additional professional learning to teachers? And what avenues for support do we provide for students who are impacted by trauma? And finally, we need to recognize that our teachers who support kids with a trauma history may be at risk for experiencing secondary traumatic stress triggers themselves. And so we also need to look at how to build systems within schools that focus on identifying whether staff our teachers are experiencing vicarious trauma? What pathways can we provide them to get 
support, debriefing, and help with um, managing some of those things. Um, And just, I guess, normalizing discussions about some of the ways that this work is really hard. And it's okay if it feels really hard, but we're here to support you. And we're here to help you take care of yourself. And finally, how are we going to recognize all the amazing work that our teachers are doing within the school? We're telling teachers how amazing they are and celebrating their successes rather than just focusing on problems. And so the last topic that we're going to look at in this episode is some around the considerations for other members of the school community when we're talking about behaviour management. So we had someone ask about some strategies for casual relief staff, for example. So I'll throw this question out to the both of you. Um, how can we upskill other members of the, impo- of the school community, so casual relief teachers and also support staff and families in positive behaviour support? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I um I think first of all, I kind of am shifting the the language that I use as much as possible to get away from the term behavior management because I think it has some connotations around what do we do after the problem happens or how do we perhaps manage this student for the convenience of others whereas if we reframe it as behavior support, we're looking at well what can we do to support this child to participate, succeed and thrive in the school context? And I know it's semantics, but I think a lot of people tend to really, um, the the, the words hold a lot of meaning and a lot of power in a lot of situations. So um, I'm actually actively trying to change some of my language around the term behavior management. But I think um, the question about engaging other members of the wider school community is really, it's a good one because PBS is a, it's a systems approach that relies on teams and it relies on active participation of all members of the school community. And so I'm going to talk first a little bit about how we can engage parents in the process because um, there's a lot of benefits with working collaboratively with parents to ensure um, sort of consistent community expectations that translate across home, school, and community. And so um, one organization that I quite like, the Center on Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports, which is a technical assistance center um, based out of the U.S., describes four different ways that we can think about partnering with families um, as part of our implementation efforts. So the first, again, it's a trauma-informed principle, but it's building positive relationships with families. And we can do that by having leadership view family participation engagement as a priority within the school, not as an afterthought and not as a burden. And we can ensure that we engage families as a priority by including it in strategic ways within our school's uh, vision, mission, and goals. So Um, stating that as part of our school values, having collaboration with families, and then finally, looking for practical opportunities. What are the different ways that we can establish teams that include parents to provide input into how this looks within our school? What do we value as a school community? And what are the practical things we can implement within the school that are going to help us work towards achieving our values of safety, respect, and inclusion, for example? And um, parents might have a really unique perspective that's bringing something new and fresh that um, maybe the school leaders and teachers um, uh, think a little bit different. And so I think that um, 
that relationship building and involvement of families in a planned and intentional way is very important. They also can give feedback on the acceptability of the strategies that you're using. You know, if we use things within our schools that parents don't agree with and and think are unacceptable, then we're going to probably have some conflict (laughs) with families. The next thing is to really engage in two-way communication. Communicate with families. Look at ways to Share successes and celebrate successes with parents. Bring them into that process, but also talk about the strategies that schools are implementing to address problem areas or little sticky areas within the school um, and demonstrate how data are being used. Now, data can look like lots of different things. Even parent opinion and parent perception is a source of data, but demonstrate how you're being strategic about addressing um, issues that parents are aware of within the school. Um, Third is to ensure equitable family representation, um, particularly for schools um, in culturally, linguistically diverse neighborhoods um, or with a student population. You do want to make sure that parents who are involved are representative of the wider school and student um, population. Um, And think about how parents can give input into cultural considerations, implementing Um, SWPBS in a way that is respectful and responsive to the cultural, different cultural backgrounds, cultural preferences um, of the families and and students who are part of that school. And then finally, coming back to this idea of of using data. So when partnering with families, we want to make meaningful data-driven decisions about what we're doing in our school, how are things working, and what might we do differently. And so we can actually do some data collection with families. We can ask families questions like, how satisfied are you with our current efforts within the school? Um, How is our school doing in achieving its family and school collaboration goals? What's currently working and what isn't? And what could we do to address any of the challenges? Um, So these are all different ways that we could integrate the participation of families into the SWPBS PBIS framework. So I'll turn it over to Russ to talk a little bit more about other members. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So if we're thinking about, uh, and I, I think relief stuff is just such an interesting um, uh, one at the moment, uh, given the shortages. I mean, it, it, the challenges with getting relief staff in schools at the moment is, is, is real. It's a significant challenge. And so I, I, I guess I want to um, put that out the front because anything I say is within the context of some serious constraints um, that people are experiencing that the teachers across Australia are dealing with at the moment. And that is leading to challenges in, you know, grade splits and classes in, in large groups, um, multiple classes together. And again, all of that raises really good questions about how do we do what you're talking about under those conditions, um, which are, again fair questions. So I think when we're talking about um, uh, CRTs, casual relief teachers, um, relief staff, there are several things that will help and they're structural things again. So I've seen schools that have set up really, really effective uh, relief teaching uh, kits. So in the classroom, there is an overview of the of the class group, uh, there might be uh, photos and, and names, so you don't get that situation where you walk in and you're going through the role and the students all mix up their names, which they think is hilarious, but it kind of set, sets the teacher, the relief teacher off on the wrong foot and they're sort of chasing that all day. And 
I, I've done relief work and I've been in that situation. It's really frustrating. <laughs> and it means that I, you know, I was less calmly able to use what I know were effective strategies because I was under the pump from the beginning. So structural things like having uh, photos and names can be really, really helpful. Uh, medication schedules, if there are students that actually need to have medications within the classroom. And then a clear overview of, and it doesn't have to be an essay, it can be really, really brief. It can be you know, some, some easy take homes. Here are our expectations within our school. Um, so really clear outline of what the expectations are within the classroom and the school broadly, and, and just a really brief description of maybe some of those pathways we've talked about a couple of times. What does a minor look like? Here are ways we manage minors. If it gets to this stage, here is who you call and how this, this functions from here. So, I mean, these are sort of little system things, but if we set that up, then it means that we don't have to rely on Erin um, being available on the Thursday, and Erin's our go-to person for this, and we've got that established relationship. And lots of schools have really wonderful relationships with their relief staff, um, and they can call on uh, consistent staff coming in. But again, we've seen all sorts of challenges to that. So I think some of the things that set us up for success are structural. And, and as a relief teacher going in, it means that I can use my toolkit of, uh, of, of evidence-based practices within this framework. I understand what the bounds are within this particular school context. So if I'm a relief teacher listening here, I'm thinking about how do I establish those clear expectations early? How am I open and honest and clear without coming across as sort of punitive and corrective? And, and, and this is a balance that relief teachers will understand. And I, I don't want to tell them, you know, insult them in how to do their work. But it is about that setting clear expectations. And I think the earlier we can begin uh, providing clear reinforcement for um, good stuff that's happening in the room, the, the sooner we can create a positive environment. So in the, in the nerdy speak, we would call this behavior specific praise. So if I can outline my expectations early, and then start delivering behavior-specific praise with really high rates, <laughs> like really get stuck into it, mm -hmm. I can actually show that if you're doing the right thing, I see that, and you're, I'm gonna make sure that you understand that it's seen and noticed, and um, I, I'm a positive person in this environment. But then if you see stuff that is um, going on that is not okay and sits outside the expectations, and again, within that systems change where we're clear on what those expectations are, but at the school level and classroom level, then we can do some error correction with a greater sense of what we're looking for to correct within this environment. So if you are a CRT and you are going across multiple schools and you don't have those structures in place, I would recommend writing down what your expectations are within your space for you, having a clear idea of how you're going to manage behaviors up to a certain level and my first question when I would arrive at a school is if a behavior gets to this level, who do I call and what does that look like? Um, so you can establish for yourself um, sort of some parameters around how do I respond using that idea of majors and minors, and, and, but having a clear before you're in the room thinking about well, what are my expectations for today? <laughs> no, 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 let's go with some clear expectations so you don't have to think about it every day. You know what you're working towards and you know what behaviors you're going to be looking for to provide high rates of behavior specific praise and or really clear error correction. With error correction not just being, hey, that's not how we do it in while I'm in this classroom, but also then providing the opportunity to respond and then providing that additional positive reinforcement when students engage in that, in that um, 
the expected behaviour. So when considering education support staff, there are a number of challenges that, um, that we can just name and own up front. And that is that ed support staff, um, ES, uh, teacher associates, teacher assistants, how, however we're labelling them across jurisdictions, they often do a lot of the contact work with students who are exhibiting problem behaviours or challenging behaviours, behaviours of concern. Um, and so they often are charged with the implementation, some of the more complex implementation. Uh, and, and so from an anecdotal perspective, from my work in schools, uh, a lot of the time is working alongside um, ES to support them in their work. And it can be particularly challenging. And, and for the staff that I've worked with, there are several things that I, I noted. One is it can feel like it's quite isolated at times. There can be situations where the class is doing other things and the student that they're supporting is in another space or um, the student might need a break and, 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 and the, uh, it is them and the student outside. Or, and, and of course, there are duty of care questions and, and sort of policy things that are worth thinking through at the school level. But it can, it can be something that can feel quite isolated. It also can be something that can feel um, challenging insofar as the skills that, um, that are required. It can be a complex task. And so to have that level of skill, we need to give professional development. But layering on top of that, the professional development is difficult because it's hard to get everyone together in the one place at the one time due to timetabling. They're often, um, ed support staff are often timetabled from 9 till 3 or 9 till 3.30. They often work through lunch and finish early. And so calling them in on days off, getting a group of um, our education support staff together can be a challenging task. And then when we have them together, what does that actually mean for the students that they typically support? And so there are several things that I think are absolutely worth doing. One is making that time, and it might cost a little bit of budget, but actually making the time on um, curriculum days to deliver uh, education support staff specific training that relates to the students' um, needs within that community. And there might be some specific things that are worth focusing on, and, and some of those might be delivering um, positive reinforcement, like effective use of positive reinforcement. Um, it, it might relate to uh, a, a functional understanding of behaviour. Because sometimes when we talk about a functional understanding of behaviour, we're saying that sometimes we think we are um, supporting a student to calm down when we're actually reinforcing escape from work. And so there's just some little stuff like that, a little trick where we're accidentally making our, our situation worse and we can provide our education support staff with the skills to know, am I, hang on a second, am I actually making this um, better or is this actually making it worse? Um, and so providing time out for ed support staff to get the professional development they need to meet the specific needs of the students within the community that they serve is really, really important. And when this happens, we see thrilled, grateful, um, <laughs> like, Ed support staff that are seen within the community and have their needs met as they go to do a very challenging task. Now, it's also really important that teachers um, understand their role in coordinating the program for education support staff. It's a teacher's responsibility to the, all the students on their class list, and their job is to ensure that they provide a high-quality program um, for their students, and that might be delivered um, with the support of an education support staff member. But in order for that to happen really, really well, there needs to be really effective communication. 
And the same challenges that I talked about before in terms of time and getting everyone together, the, those challenges, are, uh, they, they sit double because teachers are time um, poor and education support staff are time poor too. So finding a little bit of overlap time is really, really important. And um, I don't necessarily have like really good answers for that. I just have some thoughts around finding time where it doesn't add to workload. So it might be that um, for five minutes of yard duty, um, the teacher and the ES walk and talk together. Now I know that's gonna get interrupted and it's not a perfect solution, but it's creating space. Um, ideally, if it can be resourced, it, school leadership providing um, 15, 20 minute, half an hour um, time uh, allotments or allocations within um, time release or some other way, like actually create the time, recognize the importance of the communication between the education support staff um, and the teacher and creating that time and space for them to meet and discuss um, plans, what, how, how the work is going, how the behavior is going, because sometimes it can be um, emails late at night, it can be you know, notes on a sticky note on the desk, and, and, and that might be enough, but sitting down and work, um, working together uh, can be really, really important. So just to sum up, a lot of words in there, providing time for education support staff to receive professional development on skills that are relevant to the clients, not the students that they're supporting, um, the actual community needs, as well as that, creating time for teachers and education support staff to meet, communicate, to talk about progress, and it doesn't have to be long, and we're not trying to generate all new work, we're just trying to see how is the work we're doing going? Is there anything that I can tweak? The unit of work that I'm doing at the moment, how are they finding it? Um, are, are they responding? How much of this work are you having to prompt? Do they, you know, is the student able to respond independently or are you having to prompt a lot of this kind of stuff? There might be some little questions that we're able to ask in a small window of shared time. But if we don't have that window, it's really, really difficult to communicate, get on the same page and collaborate effectively. Um, uh, yeah. I think we just want to end today <clears throat> by talking about um, the fact that there's actually very little research on the implementation of school-wide positive behavior support or other systems for supporting improved beha uh, student behavior within schools in Australia. So a lot of what we're drawing on is research that's been conducted elsewhere around the world. And we know that what happens in other parts of the world isn't necessarily gonna meet the unique needs of Australian schools. And so one thing we're really interested in doing as researchers moving forward is doing some in-depth case studies of what implementation of these tiered frameworks, including school-wide positive behavior support, what that looks like in Australian schools, and identify really good examples and describe really good examples and effective examples of implementation in Australia. Because the more we know about what's working in our local schools, the more we can share that information to support other schools with their implementation efforts. So if any of you that are listening are in a school that's implementing and you really want to tell your story, feel free to drop us a line and we'd love to come out and visit you and have a chat about the work that you're doing. Um, and finally, we'll continue to advocate for feeding back into university teacher training programs. How can we better prepare teachers to enter into the teaching workforce with the skills to be able to effectively support the behavior, social, and emotional success of all of their students. We know that's an area where teachers often feel underprepared, so we'll continue advocating. 
That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with Erin and Russ, you can find their contact details in the transcript of this podcast over at our website, teachermagazine.com. To listen back to our last episode with Erin and Russ, just search for Behaviour Management Episode 11 wherever you get your podcasts from. We have over 200 episodes in our podcast archives. To keep up to date with all our series, make sure to subscribe to our channel, which you can do on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And while you're there, we'd love if you can rate and review us.